Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. The title of it is The Gospel Y Chart, and I will explain that in just a moment. It's the letter Y, like Yellowstone or Yankee, The Gospel Y Chart. My name is Rick Thomas, and I'm so glad that you are here. For those of you who are listening by podcast, thank you so much for jumping on the audio version of this webinar. If you do have time, please make your way over to our ministry's website so that you can watch the full one-hour animated presentation because there are several animations that I'm going to show you, graphics that are animated to help to visually communicate these significant and vital uh, spiritual truths. There's also a lot of questions. There's a lot of information on these various slides, and you may want to take screen grabs as well as watching it visually in addition to listening to the audio version. But I am so glad that you are here. And for those of you who are watching the, the webinar, thank you so much. Let me give you the big idea of this webinar. The Y chart, as in Yankee and Yellowstone, the Y chart is an old, albeit helpful biblical counseling tool that some disciple makers use to help folks See the differences between good and destructive behaviors. The Y chart has been around for a long time, probably uh, since somewhere in the 70s or maybe early 80s, and it is a common tool that biblical counselors have used. And a few of these soul care providers have tended to focus more on the behaviors than the source of our behaviors, which come from the heart. Because of the way the original Y chart was constructed, it can lead a person to focus, or in my view, to focus or overly focus on the behaviors and not dial in as much on the heart. We need to do both in sequence. We want to address what is going on in our hearts, which flow out into our behaviors. Therefore, this webinar, I call it the Gospel Y chart. And the reason I call it that is because it comprehends the entire change process from who we are in Christ to how we should believe and practice as Christ followers. Now, what I'm going to do in this webinar, it as we move on through it, I am going to draw out the gospel Y chart for you so that you can see it visually step by step. But before I get into that, I want to give you a reasonable theology of the heart. There are several scriptures in the Bible that speak to the importance of connecting, not just connecting the heart to the behaviors, but understanding that the heart is the genesis for all of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. One of the more common passages that you are familiar with is in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. I have used this passage for years in counseling and also in teaching. I would encourage you to commit it to memory because it is so helpful, so insightful, so instructive. And as you look at the structure of this passage, which I will read to you in just a moment, you will notice that Jesus says the same thing six 
different times. Now, he is not calling us dumb, but he's using redundant teaching on purpose because he wants us to get the point. And so here's the passage in Luke 6. Again, it's only three verses, but in these three verses, he repeats himself six times. Jesus says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. That's the first statement. No good tree bears bad fruit. Now, the apostles are listening to this and thinking, well, that is just common sense. But Jesus presses the point by inverting it, by saying, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. There's the second statement saying the same thing. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered for from thorn bushes, there's a third statement, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, as Jesus looks at the plant kingdom, he makes four synonymous statements to drive home a point, and then he transitions to the human kingdom when he says, here's his fifth repetitive statement, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good And then for the sixth and final time, he says, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And this is his summation in the final phrase of this passage. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so you see the continuity between the heart and the tongue as he is connecting the heart to the tongue with a straight, direct line, meaning that what we say is produced in our hearts, therefore, by their fruit ye shall know who they are. And so there is no discontinuity between the things that we say and do and our hearts that produce those words and those actions. Therefore, if you want to help an individual, you have to do more than behaviorally modify that person. You have to address what is going on in their heart. Now, I do have a full one-hour webinar on our website that you can watch freely on how to identify the ruling motives of the heart. It is so essential that we understand heart motivations because you can only help a person as you are able to competently come alongside them to help them to see what is going on in their hearts, transform that they are transformed into Christ-centered motivations so that they can produce Christ-centered fruit. Now, Jesus' half-brother, James, took this same idea of connecting the heart to our words when he talks about anger in James 4, verses 1 and 2. He asked the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he answers the question, thankfully. He says, is it not this? And then he gives us three synonyms, again, using redundant language to drive home a point. He's not saying that we're dumb, but it is so important that we get it, that James, like his half-brother, repeats himself multiple times. And so he asks the question, what is the source, a causal question, of our fights and our conflict? Why do we get angry? He says, is it not this, your passions? That's one Your passions are at war within you. And then he says, you desire. That's two. Passions and desires are the same thing. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. 
And then number three, he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he answers his own question by saying that evil fruit or evil treasure in the heart produces evil fruit, meaning that you have evil passions or evil desires or evil coveting, and that is the cause of quarrels and the fights that are among you. And so this is James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Having a good theology of the heart is absolutely essential. And so I want to put on the screen here several verses that continue to affirm this train of thought that I am providing for you. In Matthew 12, 34 and 35, Jesus says the same thing. This is Matthew's version of what Luke said. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then in Mark 7, verses 21 through 33, I will not give you that entire passage, but here's what Jesus said as part of that passage in Mark 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It is so important for us to understand that there is not only a connection between who we are on the inside and what we say and do, but if you want to help a person change behaviorally, you have to address the heart. In Matthew 15, 19, it says this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. In Psalm 119, verses 23 and 24, you've heard this verse before, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that has to be our attitude before the Lord. Our posture before God has to be search our hearts, know our hearts, help us transform our hearts so that we can live a Christocentric life. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And then finally, in Jeremiah 17.9, it does say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, thankfully, because of God's word, because of the illuminations of the Spirit of God, we do have the ability to understand our hearts as quickened, as individuals who have been made alive, as now Christians. We are not futile in our thinking. We are not like blind men groping for the wall, but the light has been turned on, and that light is in us now. It is the Spirit of God, and it opens our eyes to see things that we could not see before. And this is essential because if you want to change, you must be transformed because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. 
The things from the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural person, meaning the unsaved person, the person who is not born again. They have not been regenerated. Paul went on to say he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Just like Jeremiah said that we cannot understand our hearts, that we are desperately sick, we are desperately wicked, well, the natural person cannot because those things are spiritually discerned. But for the person who has been spiritually made alive, they can. And so as you look at your heart, as you see on the screen here, if the individual is a natural person, meaning uh, they are motivated by the flesh, then there is no way that individual can change. And this is so important. Now, I realize that trying to understand if a person is a Christian is subjectively derived. We cannot objectively understand if a person is truly, authentically born again, but nevertheless, we do have to know that if a person is not born again, they are not motivated by the Spirit. They are motivated by the flesh. Therefore, any change that they try to enact in their lives, it will not be long-term or sustainable. Uh, They can turn over new leaves. They can make resolutions. uh, They can try to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, but ultimately they can't experience long-term transformation because they aren't motivated rightly. But fortunately, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we have this beautiful passage of Scripture. This sentence, it says, or two sentences, rather. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the first sentence. And it is a beautiful sentence. There is hope for us. We don't have to be natural people motivated by the flesh forever turning over leaves and making resolutions that are not sustainable, we can be born again. And the rest of the verse says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, what that means is, is that we have a lot of hope for one. And if you are in Christ, you can experience transformation of the heart, which means you can change your behaviors, which is the point of this webinar, as I'm going to draw out for you in just a few moments the gospel why chart to talk about this essential teaching about how to change from the inside out. And so as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural unregenerated person can only be motivated by the flesh. But if a person is in Christ, then they are motivated by something that is otherworldly, something that is outside of themselves, and that is the gospel. There are many passages that talk about this external, outside motivation of the gospel. One of those you see on the screen here, Ephesians 4.32. Here's what it says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and I do talk about this uh, particular verse in my webinar about identifying the ruling motives of the heart, and I'll speak briefly to it here. You see, we have the ability to be kind to one another. We can be tenderhearted toward other people. We can have an attitude of forgiveness toward anyone because our motivation, as you see here in the verse, you're looking right at it, as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see how Paul is connecting kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness to the gospel? That is our motivation. As we continue to grow in our understanding of what the gospel means to us, that we have been forgiven by Christ, and as we continue to mature in that thought, that gospel-centered thinking, it motivates us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. The person who is born again can have not not just temporary change, but long-term, transformative, sustainable change. Now, that begs the question, if salvation is that important, which it is, and without salvation you cannot have long-term change, which you can't, what are some of the signs of salvation? As I said, that salvation is subjectively discern from our human perspective because we do not have that kind of insight onto the heart of humanity. Only God objectively knows if a person has been born from above. But there are signs that you want to look at and try to discern as you're helping a person because you want to know as best as you possibly can if this person is born again. Because if they truly aren't born again, then whatever counseling or whatever discipleship that you try to do is going to fall flat. And so we have to be comfortable with the mystery of not fully and objectively knowing if a person is born again, but yet we want to try to discern as much as we can. Therefore, there are signs that you want to look for. And I would say, I want to share eight of those signs with you here. And, and I would say that if you see these eight signs in a person's life, well, there is a strong chance that that person has been born from above. Now, here's the full list here. I'll walk through them individually. If you see these eight signs in anyone, then these are good signs that you're dealing with a regenerate person, meaning that whatever behaviors that they instill in their lives, those behaviors are not only transformative, but they can be long-term and sustainable because they're motivated by the gospel, not motivated by the flesh. And so here's the eight signs. The first one, and the most important one, is repentance, that the person is an active repenter. If a person is actively changing and you see them actively changing on a daily basis, well, that is your strongest sign. Luther said the Christian life is repentance and ongoing repenting, meaning repentance, you are born again, that's a one-time act. But then in our progressive sanctification, there is ongoing repenting, and that truly is the Christian life. And a person, if a person is, is changing daily, 
by actively repenting, well, that's your strongest sign. Another sign is humility. And the reason I say repentance is stronger than humility or more objective than humility is because we can fake humility. I mean, we're not we're, we're, we're not that innocent or that ignorant that we can't fake humility. We can. But a person who is actively repenting, well, you will see that. And, and repentance looks like something. It's a person that is progressing upward, like walking up steps. They are evolving. They are changing day by day. They are not regressing or they are not flatlining. That is more objective. But even though humility can be faked, humility is a sign of, of salvation. Another one is teachability. A person is teachable, meaning that they are not defensive, that they are an active learner. They want to know. Uh, they are question askers more than statement makers. They want to hear what you have to say. They want to learn because they want to repent, because they are humble. You see the interconnectedness of these signs of salvation. So there is repentance and humility and teachability. Number four, and these are not in, in necessary order, except I would say that repentance is number one. They love the Bible, number four. They love God's Word. That is the source of life. There should be a natural affinity toward God's Word, that it has a gravitational pull, that you want to know what the Bible says and that you want to uh, learn what the Bible says because it gives us our marching orders. It teaches us. It it is a mirror that we see ourselves in, in the Bible. When God regenerated me in 1984 and I began to read the Bible as a spirit illuminated human human being where I was no longer a natural person, but I was reading the Bible, and it was coming alive to me, I began to see myself in the Bible, and I was just enthralled by it. You should love God's Word. Uh, And number uh, five here is believers, meaning you should love believers. Not only should you love God's Word, but you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is an evidence of salvation. I mean, Christians who do not like Christians— that doesn't make sense as far as being a, a person who is saved. And then uh, number six here is prayerful. And not only should you want to hear from God, what does the Bible say, but you want to talk to God. You want to have this reciprocal relationship with, the God, with God where you are learning from him through his word and you are engaging him through prayer. And then number seven is pneumatic Pneumatic meaning that you are you're not only being taught every day by the Bible, but and you're you're transforming every day. Being pneumatic means that you're able to use modern language, you're able to pivot and change. You're not living a rigid, such a rigid and structured or legalistic life, but you're truly evolving. You're walking in the spirit, not just how you live your life daily as far as daily change is concerned, but you're pneumatic as you interact with people, that you interact with people differently because you're discerning them and you're able to be flexible, which is is another way of talking about being pneumatic. Pneumatic uh, is uh, the word, the the big theological word for uh, talking about the Holy Spirit, the pneumatos, the Spirit of God, the, the doctrine of the Spirit is pneumatology, and we want to be pneumatic creatures because the Spirit of God is alive in us. So there is a flexibility about us because we are pneumatic. That is a sign of salvation. And then number eight is loving your enemies, not that we should just love our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
but we should love our enemies. And I would draw you to Scripture where Jesus talked about this, of loving our enemies. And so what you see on the screen here, in addition to the verse that I showed you before in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, be forgiving, those are three signs of repent of salvation, and then here on the screen, there's eight more, repentance, humility, teachability, love the Bible, love believers, prayerful, pneumatic, and love your enemies. Now, there are other signs. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is important that we do the work of trying to understand within the framework of subjectivity, because, if the, again, if the person is not regenerated, then, well, the transformation cannot be long-term. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is that new creation. And that individual is no longer motivated by the flesh, but he or she is motivated by the gospel. And if this is true for you, if it's true for me, uh, well, then as we move forward into the life that we live, we can, as you see here on the screen, experience change. Now, that is the heart of the gospel Y chart. But in a few moments, I am going to draw it out. And, and again, why they call it the gospel Y chart is because when you see it in a few moments, uh, it will look like the letter Y, a capital Y on the screen. And it shows a pathway. Uh, to not only being transformed from the inside, but also being transformed from the outside as well. But before I get to the Gospel Y chart, I do want to take a brief coffee break, and thank you again so much for joining me for this webinar. And I do want to make a few appeals. I have six of them here on the screen, and my appeal to you would be to pick one, two, or three of them that you can do and I would love for you to partner with us in whatever way that you can as you see this uh, short list here on the screen. We give our resources away. If you're listening to this podcast by audio, so glad you are. You're doing so freely. I thank God for that. It is a miracle of grace that we can give our resources away. If you're watching the webinar, you're doing so freely. And the reason you're doing that is because we have a, a small army of people who believe in what we're doing and they want to underwrite it financially. But I know that everybody can't do that, but there are some things that you can do. And the most important thing that you can do is at the top of this list, and that's pray for our ministry. I know that there are many people that do that. These are the people that we will never know, not until heaven that they were the human energy as they talked to God daily and weekly about this ministry. And, and because of their prayers, uh, them engaging God, God uh, cooperating with those prayers, and we cooperating with God and living in this dynamic relationship, please pray for our ministry, if you will. Uh, put our name, our ministry on your refrigerator, your mirror, in your Bible, uh, wherever, and 
just as you think of us, ask God to continue to help us to produce resources freely so that they can wrap the globe with the practical message of Christ. And then also, uh, as you find us on social media platforms, just hit the like button. Subscribe to us. Like us. Because that helps us organically to reach more people. The average person knows 250 people. Imagine if 10,000 people who know 250 people, that's, that's astronomical. And then also write reviews and write notes about our ministry. Write your pastor, let him know about our ministry. Uh, write reviews on Amazon and other social media platforms. Give us positive ratings. That, too, will help us organically. And then as you write your friends, email, text, write your pastor, share our ministry with them, uh, that will get us into more places to where we can share the practical message of Christ. Share our resources, of course, and then, of course, the the uh, final two here, if you're able, and only if you're able, if you can donate. Uh, one time or repeatedly to our ministry, and you could support or support us on a regular basis. I certainly would appreciate it. Thank you for uh, taking this coffee break with me. Now, what I want to do at this point is I want to sketch out for you animatedly uh, the gospel Y chart. This is my version of it. I looked at the gospel, uh, looked at the Y chart many years ago, and I, to me, it seemed like it had holes in it. So as I begin to pray about it and and sketch out uh, some different iterations of it, I came up with what I uh, want to share with you now. The starting place in the change process always begins with who we are. Our identity is in Christ. We are Christians, Christians. We are little Christ. We are Christ followers. That is our identity. We don't have any other identity, or we could adopt all kinds of identities, I suppose, and many people do. A victim identity, for example, or identity politics is very common in our culture today. But as Christians, we are not beholding to those. Our identity is in a person, and that person is the gospel, and it starts at the cross. And so when we come to the cross, we are regenerated or born again. Again, we receive an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, but it is given to us, gifted to us by God. And now we have a new righteousness that we want to grow up in, and we can grow up into this right kind of living if our identity is truly situated in a Christocentric worldview mindset. And that's why I spent the first half of this webinar talking about not just how our hearts have to be changed, but what does it mean to be transformed at the heart, motivated by the gospel as, a, as opposed to being motivated uh, fleshly or by the flesh. And so you see here on the screen, our hearts are a new creation in Christ. We are no longer motivated by the flesh, but we are motivated by the gospel. This is our identity. Now, if you struggle with this, it is essential that you nail this idea down because this develops your presupposition. A presupposition is like a pair of glasses that you wear. 
depending on the color of the lens. When you put on those glasses, it's going to color your entire world. It will not only color your world, but it will set the trajectory uh, for all the decisions that you make, and it will determine how your life will end. And so your presuppositional truth is your baseline, is your starting point. And as Christians, our lens has to be Christocentric. We are Christians. Our identity is in Christ. Not now that's not just a theoretical concept, but that is a transformative concept, as you see on the screen here, that we must be motivated by the gospel. And so as our presupposition is situated in a Christocentric worldview, now we can start thinking outwardly about what we do. Out of our presupposition will flow our thoughts. And again, if our thoughts are our, comes out of our identity, who we truly believe we are, this is the person that I am, a Christocentric person, then that's going to affect my thoughts. But it is possible for a Christian to have thoughts because of their immaturity. You remember what Peter said, that we are newborn babes in Christ, and so even though we have repented, as Luther says, the Christian life is repentance and ongoing repenting, uh, we can truly be born again, but our thoughts can be infantile can be immature, we can be like newborn babes, and because of that, we can take what Paul talked about, uh, which is an easy path, because we have a former manner of life. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22, 23, 24, in those three verses, they, they, they work uh, together in, in tandem. And Paul says in verse 22 of Ephesians 4 that we have a former manner of life that is corrupt and has deceitful thinking, deceitful desires, and we have brought that former manner of life into our Christian experience. Now, depending on how powerful that former manner of life was for you, it can still have a a dominating presence in your life in your mind. I have a webinar that I would love for you to watch. It's called uh, Human Motivation and Shaping Influences. It is a one-hour presentation, visual presentation, on why we do what we do. And I go through an entire list of shaping influences. There's more than a dozen of them, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list just to help to uh, help you to understand that our former manner of life can be powerful, can be dominating, and depending on how long you have lived in that former manner of life, for me it was 25 years. God regenerated me when I was 25 years old. And so I lived a quarter of a century with old habits, old ways of thinking, old defaults that I automatically defaulted to, like, say, when things got rough, or even when I wasn't thinking, this was my automatic habituation, because that is easy. 
as you see on the screen. And so you can be regenerated, but because that former manner of life can have captured our thinking to such an extent that we will continue to take this easy path because we have habituated ourselves in that path. But there is a harder path. That harder path is verse number 24, where it is true holiness and true right living. Now, in the beginning of our salvation experience, many of us will find this difficult because of our former habituations. And that's why this Y chart, you can see why it's called the Y chart. As you look visually on the screen, it looks like a Y. And you can see why the Y chart uh, is built this way and why it is so easy to default to the right to our former manner of life rather than true right living. And you really want to wrestle with this. And I'm going to give you some concepts in a few moments to think through uh, that, that will give you some handles to think about and implement in your life so that you can move the pendulum over from this former manner of life, which has always been easy because it's your habituated default, to the harder path. But eventually, because habits are really not bad things when our habits are leading us down a right path. Habits are good. Uh, we want our default. We want our habits to be true, right living. But the crux of the matter is what you see in Ephesians 4.23. Uh, it's in the thinking bubble here on the screen where Paul says that we need to renew the spirit of our minds, and that's where things become difficult for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, this is the passage of Scripture that talks about strongholds that uh, grow up into our minds. Uh, strongholds are thought fortresses. There are fortresses that takes our thoughts captive. That's what strongholds are. And many of us have these thought fortresses that have captured our minds, and we keep defaulting to these old patterns of thinking because that's how we have always been. Now, imagine this, that if you truly have not been regenerated, that you're not a new creation, imagine how hard it would be to shift from a former manner of life on the right to a true right living mindset on the left. The truth is you could not change. It is not possible because, as I said in the first part of this webinar, there has to be true heart transformation, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what you see here is a full presentation of the gospel Y chart. And so this is the pathway to how change happens. Now, I want to get into a few particulars from this point forward, talking about how to put off the old person and put on a new person. There are three ways that transformation happens according to the New Testament, humanly speaking. Obviously, God is the one that transforms us. Obviously, God is the one that grants repentance. God does the work, 
but we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are not inactive, passive spectators in the change process. There are some things for us to do. Maybe you can think about it as primary calls and secondary calls. God is the primary cause agent that brings change into our lives. We are the secondary cause agents as we cooperate with what he is doing. And so there are three things that we can do according to the New Testament to cooperate with God to bring change in our lives. One of those you see on the screen here is called amputation. The passage of Scripture is Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said it this way, quote, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, this is some of the strongest language that you will read in the entire Bible. Now, please understand from a teaching perspective, this is hyperbolic language, hyperbole, meaning that he is exaggerating to make a point. I talked earlier how he used redundancy as a teaching method, as he said six times in three verses in, in Luke 6, 43 through 45. Well, hyperbole is another teaching method as well. And, and the reason he's using hyperbole here is because of the seriousness of of the matter. If there is something that you can do to cut off a behavior, then do it. He is not saying that you are to literally tear out your eye and throw it away, or that you are literally to cut off one of your, your right hand and throw it away. But he's talking about the amputation method of sanctification. Now, I will speak to that. I'll give you some illustrations of that in a moment. But I want to go to the second way that change happens according to the New Testament, and that is mortification. And you see that in Romans 8.13. The verse is, the sentence says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, meaning fleshly motivated. But if by the Spirit you put to death, being spiritually motivated, or as I've been saying in this webinar, gospel motivated, but the Spirit of God is illuminating you, and not just illuminating you, but empowering you. You have a different kind of power, a different energy, a different source in the Spirit rather than our flesh. Our flesh will not not just motivate us, but it will not sustain us properly. The Spirit of God will motivate us correctly, and it will sustain us to long-term change. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's no sustainable change there. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The phrase here, put to death, is the old English word mortification. I'm using amputation and mortification for rhythm purposes, uh, but both of those words are rich in theology. Mortification means to put to death. It is a process of dying over a period of time. You see the difference between amputation and 
and mortification. Amputation is not a process. It is a one-time cutting away of something and getting it out of your life. I'll give you some illustrations of that in just a moment. Mortification is a more challenging process. It is a continual daily putting to death. You can't just cut it off. It is a process as you work out your salvation. And so both of these work in tandem. Perhaps an illustration, maybe a weak illustration, would be the common cold. Amputation, you would do things like uh, maybe uh, eat some warm soup and drink liquids and, and wipe your nose and wash your hands uh, Kleenex and things of that nature. Those are all things that you can behaviorally do. But you know that no matter what you do behaviorally along those lines, it's still going to take seven to 10 days for the disease to go out of your body. And so that's how amputation and mortification work together. They are two different things. There's two ways to think about it, but both of them are important. And then there is limitation, as we see in Hebrews 12.1. The Hebrew writer says, therefore, he's connecting back to chapter 11, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, uh, he gave us a cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's saying, let us lay aside these weights and the sins that cling so closely. The idea here is to limit some things. Some things, laying aside every weight, weights aren't helpful. Weights in themselves are not evil necessarily, but they might not be helpful if you're running a race. And so that means for some people, uh, it would be best for you to limit some things. And for other people, maybe they don't have to limit those things because it's not hindering them in their race. Think about it like leg weights that you wear. Leg weights are not a sin. And so he, he says, lay aside every weight. And then lay aside every sin. Those are two different things. And so I'm speaking to the laying aside every weight. And so let's say that you're wearing leg weights and you want to run the race with endurance. Well, even though the weight is not necessarily a sin, you may want to lay it aside. And so these are three ways to think about your sanctification process, amputation, mortification, and limitation. Now, I want to give you some illustrations of this. I have a chart here that you see on the screen. At the heading of the chart, there are three columns. In column number one, you have amputation, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Column number two, the center column is mortification. In Romans 8:13 and then the column on the far right is limitation and that's Hebrews 12 verse number 1. I want to give you uh, three ways of thinking about uh, I, I want to give you a problem and then three ways of thinking about the problem. And so in amputation, so let's say the problem is pornography. Well, obviously the amputation is you cut it off. Uh, meaning you put blocks on your computer, you throw away the magazine, you, you, you talk to people that, you know, this is what I struggle with. There are some amputatable things that you – there are some behavioral things that you can do to cut away 
porn, the physical looking or participating engagement in pornography. Mortification, though, is different. And the word that you see here on the screen is lust. Now, you can't cut off lust like flipping a switch. There are some behavioral things that you can do for porn, but there's going to be some hard work of addressing lust that is in your heart. And so porn that you amputate is external. Lust that you mortify is internal. Now, both of those things work together, but those are two different processes. And so you see the difference between porn and lust. And then limitation, for example, uh, social media. Social media is not a sin in itself, but if you're struggling with pornography, maybe social media would be something that you would want to limit in your life, where the next person down the road, well, doesn't have a problem with social media, and so they would not necessarily limit it. So you can see the pattern that I've set up here with these three ways of overcoming a sin, amputation, mortification, and limitation. The issue is porn. You amputate all the ways that you can amputate it physically, behaviorally, and then you do the work of renewing the mind, of dealing with the true source of the porn, the lust, and then there are some limitation measures you can take. And I've given you one example, social media, but of course, uh, you could add to the list. All right, number two illustration is adultery. Well, amputation, stop seeing that person. Don't drive by their house. Perhaps uh, find another job. Perhaps go to another church. Uh, There are some behavioral modifying things that you need to do. And then mortification, the illustration that I'm using here is anger. Let's say that you're in a marriage and you, you've been angry at your wife or angry at your husband for a, a while. And uh, remember what James said in, in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3 that we looked at earlier. You desire and you do not have, so you covet, and so you commit adultery. Now, there's other mortifying things that you would have to do. I'm using just straightforward, simplistic illustrations here, not getting into a word cloud of possibilities, just to give you an idea how amputation, mortification, and limitation work. And then on limitation, as far as adultery is concerned, perhaps not watch these movies. Uh, that create uh, these mirages, that these these ideas, these utopian thoughts that you have uh, in your mind, uh, because they feed this desire for a better life, which feeds the anger that's going on in your heart because of the ma- the marriage that you have now, which tempts you toward adultery. And so you see how these three ideas of amputation, mortification, and limitation work together with this problem. All right, let's take drunkenness. I'm using as mortification. Now, drunkenness, the amputation is stop drinking, of course. Don't be going by the the liquor store. Don't hang out with friends who drink liquor. Uh, Don't go to football game parties where there's drinking going on. Don't go to the bar, etc. And you can make a a, a long list there, I suppose, of some things that you can amputate out of your life. Mortification is insecurity. A person who struggles with insecurity, And as they say, there's courage in the bottle. So if I get lit just a little bit, I am bolder and have more courage. And so they're using drunkenness as a way to uh, compensate for the insecurity and the shame and the guilt and fear that they feel inside of their heart. It will be a different process of working through insecurity. And of course, limitation would be drinking and bars. In this case, I use drinking because drinking is not necessarily a sin, but it could be a sin for this person. 
person here. Gossip, and then self-righteousness, and then the limitation is bad companions. I will move a little more quickly. From this point forward, you see the idea. So if you're gossiping about somebody, well, the only way that you can gossip about a person is by elevating yourself above them and looking down on them. I'm talking about self-righteousness. And so you can cut off saying bad things, but dealing with a self-righteous heart will be a little more challenging as far as mortifying what's going on in this person's heart. Bad companions, of course, you can limit them because they're influencing you in adverse ways. All right, let's take another one, overeating. And the mortification would be craving food. Limitation could be eating out. Eating out is not a bad thing, or it doesn't have to be. Uh, but if you eat out all the time, and if it feeds this, no pun intended, well, maybe a pun intended, uh, this craving for food to where you're overeating, you see how they interplay there. Oversleeping. Uh, let's say the mortification is worry. And again, let me repeat that you can add other things to these lists here. I just, I'm just illustrating them to uh, provoke you to think about them. And then limitation could be staying up late. Uh, a person who worries, and let's say they stay up late, Staying up late doesn't have to be a sin, but again, it could be a sin for this person, which leads to oversleeping, and they get into a cyclic effect, and that is truly problematic. And so they want to address this problem in a three-prong approach of oversleeping, amputate it, mortification, deal with the worry issues, renewing the mind and whatever that means. And then, of course, some of the limitating factors in their life is stop staying up so late. An individual who is always late, they procrastinate. Uh, perhaps uh, some of the things that they could do is limit or do less. And then finally, fashion, a person who's given to fashion. Uh, the mortification issue could be fear of others, meaning that they crave reputation. They crave approval, acceptance from other people. Uh, they could spend less on their budget. And so what you see here on this chart are are or illustrations of the amputation aspect of change, the mortification aspect of change, and the limitation, and you see how they can interplay with each other. It would be excellent for you to take a screenshot of this slide here and then have this discussion with a spouse or uh, with your family or with friends or a small group. And then you could actually draw out a word cloud around some of these words because under each one of them, it's not an exhaustive list. It's just one word to describe a, a possibility. But there could be other possibilities, and you could pick any one of these amputatable items on the left and then really work through uh, how to fully amputate, fully mortify, and then the many different ways that you can limit it. All right, so we're talking about changing habits, and so I want to go back uh, on the screen here to 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if you are a new cre creation, you do want to change your habits. As I said earlier, that habits can be bad and they can be good. So we don't want to poo-poo habits. We actually want to embrace them. But changing from bad habits to good habits is the challenge. I remember my MABC program at the Master's University in Santa Clarita, California, that one of my profs, I don't remember which one it was, uh, the three that I had were Wayne Mack and Stuart Scott and John Street. 
but one of them, and I would attribute this, but I just don't remember who said it, but one of them uh, talked about this idea of blocks and fans when it came to changing our habits from bad habits, our former manner of life, to good habits. And what my prof said is that what you want to do is to create blocks, meaning put things in your way. Put hurdles in your way that keep you from from getting to those uh, bad habits that you have, and then you want to implement fans like an oscillating fan, a, a box fan that you put in your window, fans that blow you toward true right living. It's kind of a quirky way, but it's helpful, and I've thought about it for all of these years, and it is something that when I'm helping others or thinking about my own sanctification, I, I simply put put it in in this kind of construct of blocks and fans. And so uh, you want to think that way as well. What are the blocks? It's just going back to amputation, for example. What are the blocks that you can put in your life? And then what are the fans uh, that motivate you? And this would be a wonderful exercise as you think about any bad habit that you may have. To look at the gospel Y chart in a quick view of just pulling out the big pieces. As I wrap up this webinar, I've presented this on the screen so that you can see it, and I've just taken the major pieces. Uh, the most important piece, honestly, is who we are in Christ, our identity, that we have to be a new creation. And then what flows out of that new creation, what we do are our behaviors. The easy path would be sinful living because that has been our old time habituation, our former manner of life. And we want to create blocks and fans, and we want to think about amputation and mortification and limitation so that we can swing the pendulum over to right living. Now, as I wrap up, I do want to ask you a few questions uh, that you can apply this webinar to your life. I have five questions for you all together. The first one is, why is it essential to be a new creation? if you want to experience long-term, sustainable change? And then the follow-up question is, why can't unbelievers have this kind of change? Now, this is a huge talking point, and I would encourage you to take some time to write out your answers uh, to these two questions that I have here under number one. Why is it essential to be a new cre creation? I've talked about this at length throughout this webinar. And then why can't unbelievers have this kind of change? And it's also important to go back to what I was saying, that uh, we can't ultimately know if a person is born again. But you do want to look at those signs of regeneration, even though they're subjectively derived. There is some data that you can gather about a person to come close to understanding if they are born again by how does their life measure up to those signs that I presented to you. Number two, why is it easier to change a behavior than the heart that motivates the behavior? Go back to amputation and mortification. You can amputate things out of your life. It's easier to amputate, as hard as that may be, it's easier to amputate than it is to change the heart that motivates the behavior, the mortification aspect of change.
And then the follow-up question, what is one adverse outcome of a person who modifies externally without true heart transformation? I'll give you a hint here. The Pharisees uh, in the New Testament, they implemented, if you take Paul's model of Ephesians 4, verses 22, 23, 24, put off, renew, and put on, uh, they use two steps, put off, put on, but not renew the spirit of their minds. And so they put off bad behavior, put on what they perceive to be good behavior. That is a two-step process to be a Pharisee. Change is not a two-step process. It's a three-step process. You, As you are putting off, you are renewing. As you are renewing, you are putting on. It's not a sequence in the sense that you do one, and then once you've completed it, you start the other. And then once you've finished renewing, then you start the other. No, all of these things are simultaneous actions. You do them all the time together. Why is it easier to change a behavior than the heart that motivates the behavior. And the follow-up question, what is one adverse outcome of a person who modifies externally without true heart transformation? Now, I've given you an answer with the Pharisees, for example, the legalistic mindset, but I would like for you to think of another adverse outcome of the person who modifies externally without true heart transformation. Question number three, is there a good behavior that others see in you, but you know is not Christ-like fruit. You're pretending to be something you're not. Uh, you may remember earlier when I talked about signs of salvation, I mentioned humility, and I said that's not the number one sign because you can fake humility. All of us can fake humility. We know how to do that. And so is there a good behavior that others see in you, but you know it's not Christ-like fruit. You're pretending to be something you're not. For those of you who have heard me speak publicly, you've heard me talk about uh, our representative, that we all have a representative, a person who represents us, a, a, a carefully edited, crafted image of ourselves that we push out into the public space, hoping that people will like our representative because we're not sure that they li will like the real thing. Motivated by shame and fear uh, will cause us or tempt us to create a representative of a Christ-like person, but that is not truly who we are. Thus, the question is, is there a good behavior that others see in you, but you know it's not Christ-like? The follow-up is, what will be your plan to change from the inside out? Number four, what is your number one recurring temptation? Name it, claim it. What is your number one recurring temptation? For many of us, it will have something to do. It will be a manifestation of anger. And then the follow-up, what three fans, remember the, the box fan, what three fans have you implemented to break and change your habit and then list three blocks that you have or you should have implemented to keep them from recurring. And so this is getting to the blocks and fans slide that I showed you a few moments ago. And I would encourage you to take question number four here and then use that as a writing assignment. And, and you can list more fans and, and more blocks, but it's something, if you really want to change, uh, I would encourage you to spend time thinking about question number four. And then finally, number five, you're helping a person struggling with depression based on this webinar. 
What are five pieces of valuable information you would like to know about them or suggestions that you would give them? But what I'm asking you here is how would you counsel a person struggling with depression based upon this webinar? Now, that is an excellent homework assignment, and perhaps you can uh, take question number five here and go back through this webinar. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, I do encourage you to watch this if you can, and then take this, this fictional case study of depression and, and, and pin that on the wall, and then start the webinar again and go through it and think through how you would counsel someone struggling with depression. The big idea in the webinar is the Y chart is an old, albeit helpful, biblical counseling tool that some disciple makers use to help folks see the differences between good and destructive behaviors. A few of these soul care providers have tended to focus more on the behavioral than the source of our behaviors, which come from the heart. This webinar has added the word gospel to Y chart. I call it the gospel Y chart because it comprehends the entire change process from who we are in Christ to how we should believe and practice as Christ followers. The gospel Y chart. My name is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.